and welcome to Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and today my very special guest is Tim Finn. Many of you will know Tim as a solo artist and also as the frontman of Split Ends and a one-time member of Crowded House. Tim is heading back to Australia to do a concert tour under the banner, The Lives and Times of Tim Finn. The fascinating thing about the shows are that Tim, who's fronting a full band this time around, will be playing all of his most well-known songs in chronological order. It's such a terrific idea. Tim started his recording career way back with Split Ends with Mental Notes in 1975. And I started off by asking him about when the set list will actually begin. Here he is, Tim Finn. Uh, well, yeah, the first record was was done in 75. I'm not actually doing anything off Mental Notes, but um, I'm starting around 77. And I actually only, I doing the set list, I only really got as far as the early 90s because there's just uh, quite a few songs to to do so i might have to do a part two at some point but uh yeah it's it's a chronological um you know through the different lives i suppose that people know of me from being in split ends with all the different kind of periods of that band and then um solo work um and then you know uh, the um the album that i made with crowded house woodface so those are the main that's where the main um source material is coming from and and they're songs that I still love playing. And I did them in Manly last year, towards the end of last year. Really enjoyed myself. The band I've got, um, they know all the old stuff really, really well. They play all the parts the right way. So, you know, that makes a big difference because I've done tours before. We have sort of thrown mm. attempts. We've done versions of, of say, split-in songs, but we haven't really gone right into the minutiae of the arrangements especially with keyboard parts, guitar parts, you know, just trying to get it absolutely nailed. And this band did it really without, um, you know, without me having to kind of get on their case. They just they just really enjoyed learning all those parts. I mean, what keyboard player wouldn't want to learn Eddie Rayner's parts, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the synthesizer solo in, in Charlie or, or in Ghost Girl, those two moments alone, or the arrangement he did in Dirty Creature, you know, incredible orchestrations that Eddie used to come up with. So yeah, it was a blast last year and it'll be it'll be even better this time because we're in really beautiful halls and uh, we've got a, a lighting show that um, is being done by this uh, this guy who works mainly in theatre. So you should have a lot of atmosphere. You know, the first time I saw you play was the last Split End show in Brisbane, which was uh, Ends With A Bang. And, and weirdly enough, I went Googling on YouTube and I found there was a news report from it from Channel 7 Brisbane. And I, I, I remember seeing the show, and for me it was like a real moment in my life because, first of all, we got there early, which I try not to do these days if I can help get anywhere early. But we saw, uh, I think it was the Venetians were on first. Yep. QED were on. Oh, and yeah. you you guys headlined, and it was it ends with a bang. And I'll never forget, the Venetians were great. I think they had a hit at the time, and, the guy in the Venetians threw his tambourine in the air and caught it. And I thought, that is the coolest thing I've seen. They're very simple times back then. But yeah. then you guys came on and you threw it in the air and caught it behind your back. I was just like, that is mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, how much I practice that? I was gonna say, how much practice would go into that? Yeah, well, about as much practice as I used to put into to doing a perfect uh, torpedo punt of a rugby ball, you know. You could spend hours on that, just getting it to carve through the air and spin in the right way and, you know, that sort of thing. And so um, that tambourine throw was just something that that I, I practised a little bit. I mean, there are so many 
um, more sophisticated tricks that one could do. I've always marveled at the, you know, the mic swinging stuff that Roger yeah. Daltrey does and, um, you know, various other things. But, you know, that, and look at Pink. I mean, you know, what does she do? She does that kind of thing where she goes up on the, mm. on the rock and, and gets entwined, you know. Um, so, yeah, relatively humble trick, but I'm glad you remembered it, Sean. I, I appreciate that. All, all these years later, it's still burned in my memory banks. And <laughs> I remember if people say to me, you know, the great front men you've seen, I, I would put you in the top five because uh, the way that you the way that you kind of led that band out front. And I wondered who were the people that inspired you to adopt that persona that you adopted out front? Because it was very unique. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. I I, I really don't know because there's no direct, you know, because I love groups and, I mean, you know, the last thing in a group, apart from, of course, you've got the Rolling Stones with Mick Jagger, uh, you know, who, who is a peerless, a peerless example of, of a great front man. But a lot of the groups I like, they didn't have front men. They just had, you know, two guitars, bass, drums. And so um, even though you might have known who was singing, you know, who wrote which song from whoever was singing it, they nevertheless could could then melt back into the band. And, and, and you, you know, you wouldn't think of them in the same way that you think of, say, Mick Jagger. But Jagger wasn't particularly an influence. I never saw them live for a start. So, you know, it's really hard to know who I was uh, channeling or, you know, emulating or I don't, you know, I think I just made it up. And I I, I, um, I look back now with some nostalgia. I was talking to Jimmy Barnes about this in Auckland a, couple, a year or so back. Yeah, we were standing there at this dinner party talking about being front men, you know, and it's, it's like a fading art, you know, mm. Um and we're having a bit of a laugh about it and also a bit of a nostalgic sort of moment, you know, the, how great it feels to be in front of a great band and, you know, to feel that responsibility and that awesome kind of freedom and power as well. Um, and then you realise the crowd is there to be taken, you know, and you can just um, play with that energy and they love it and you love it. And, yeah, it's a special thing, uh, which is very different to being a guitarist or, or you know, having to play your instrument. So, yeah, it, it's... Um, something that I, I don't miss it, but I, I love getting back into it occasionally, uh, like I will be on this tour, although it's different. Doing solo tour is very different to being lead singer with a band. Well, I guess on a solo tour, you've got that wonderful autonomy where you can choose the set list and there's no compromises, right? Yeah, it, it is It is like that, I guess. I mean, in our band and split ends, Nigel Griggs, our bass player, would always do the song lists and he would really go about it um, with a kind of dedication so that during the afternoon he'd already be chipping away. And by the nighttime, he'd have this entirely unique song list, completely different from the night before. Um, as you know, a lot of people don't do that, especially mm -hmm. nowadays. They'll do the same set every night. And that never made any sense to us. Um, but I didn't have to think about it much. You might give Nigel one or two tweaks, but basically he was he was a master of the song, of the song list, you know, in the same way that he used to record us um, in rehearsals and just on cassettes and then he'd, he'd stay up all night editing them and so by the time he came down for breakfast if you were doing a re in a residence you know rehearsing in a residential centre somewhere like we did in Wales and Holland and various places you'd come down for breakfast and, and there'd be Nigel with a with a master cassette of just the very best moments of four hours of jamming so yeah you can't ask for a better, a better bandmate than that. That's amazing that's incredible yeah. you, you once told me though that there was one kind of misstep in your live career where you guys opened with um, I See Red. Yeah. Well, we were perverse in that way. I guess we we kind of knew what was coming, but we tried it. 
It was in a it was in a, a suburban hall in Sydney, not far from the CBD. I can't think of the name of that hall now. I'm sure it's gone as a venue. Um, but anyway, yeah, we did Icy Red first, and and the place went completely ballistic, and and then it was just you know very hard to kind of crawl back from there. I mean, you know, start doing like just a regular set with dips and troughs. It was all troughs, you know, and we had to kind of. Uh, push towards the end, uh, swearing that we would never do it again. Oh, I'm sure, though, that the crowd didn't wouldn't have complained. You know, they <laughs> <laughs> they got their money's worth. It, it must be a joy, I guess, when you're wearing those two hats. You make an album, and then if it's the right kind of record, that album then provides you with a reasonable portion of a set list when you go on tour. So when you had albums like, for example, uh, True Colors. That must have really dominated the set list for quite a while, I'd imagine. Yeah, it did. Um, we certainly would build a set list around that because so many of the songs became known like by so many people. And so you could dip into that album really deep, whereas other albums you might only be playing two or three songs at most from them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're lucky. You know, you're very lucky if you have songs that people know because it just creates this wave, this momentum um, it's just as any new band or you know anybody playing new material that nobody knows. It is quite fraught. You know, you're hoping that that one or two of them are going to connect, and you're you're aware that you're imposing on these people's time. You know, and putting yourself out there. And uh, whereas when you've got hits or like songs that people know, album cuts they know. Like Poor Boy was was never a hit, but it, it may as well have been. You know, when you've got songs like that, um, it's just so much easier. And I guess all new bands, young bands, they they just crave that, you know, that that having a song that everybody will sing along to and just instantly love when they hear the first chords. That's what you're kind of aspiring to, and it, it's a dream really. And when it happens, it's it, yeah, it's it's a big rush. Talking about a set list for a show, obviously there's got to be an, a flow and a balance when you make an album. So something like uh, I didn't realize it till recently when it was on Facebook that. Escapade had a birthday, and that is kind of like, in, in a way, one of the great Australian, we say Australian, we claim you, Australian New Zealand pop records of all time. Did that um, did that album fall into place quite easily for you when you were recording? You had all the songs at your fingertips? Yeah, I had the songs um, mostly written. Some of the lyrics needed finishing, but I essentially had an album's worth of songs that I'd, that I'd been writing in between split ends, recordings, and tours and that there were always a few songs that that didn't quite come together for the ends for some reason uh you know and they were I just knew that there was enough there plus we decided to take a break from the band for a while um and I just heard this Renee Gare track on the radio um and I just thought who who's playing the drums you know who's that drummer and it was Ricky Fatara of course and so I went straight to Ricky and through him met Mark Moffat and our engineer Timmy Kramer, you know, it was an amazing team of people to work with. They were they were sort of in a great zone to do it. I was too. It was freedom. Um, you know, there was no pressure. It was just joy. And Ricky knew a lot of musicians. Some of them passing through town. Richard T happened to be on tour with Paul Simon. Came in and played piano and uh, Fraction Too Much Friction. A couple of others. Um, Vince Gill played mandolin on on a couple of things. You know, just a classic bluegrass kind of player. But he played. He was able to play pop, 
um, and just so skillful and eloquent with his mandolin playing. Um, things like that were just happening. And it was just, it opened a lot of doors for me. I really loved it. And and um, it sort of changed my world, really, yeah. When you think, too, something like Richard T, I think he played on Bridge Over Troubled Water. So to get him on your album is just mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah, it was mind-blowing. We were, we were at Festival Studios, which was in a kind of an industrial part of Sydney, and apparently Ricky was, Ricky was laughing because he got out of the cab and he thought he was in a pretty bad neighbourhood. You know, he was relating it to New York, whatever. <laughs> it's only Sydney, man, you know. But, he, yeah, he was expecting maybe something heavy was going to happen. And he came in and he just had, you know, really, really big hands, which a lot of great piano players um, do. And uh, he just laid in. It was so deep and so heavy what he did. Um, I'd never heard anything like it, you know, because as great as Eddie is, Eddie's a great piano player, don't get me wrong. Amazing piano player. Sometimes I think he should just do, he should just play piano on a gig, you know. Um, but he, and he always says he will, but he never does. But but even so, Richard T was just some other place, you know, it was deeper and swampier, and I guess he's coming from gospel as well. His chord uh, shapes um, were just unique to that world, and it just sounded beautiful to me, yeah. I kind of didn't realise till I looked at the chronology. I, I thought in my head, remembering it, that that album came after Split Ends had broken up. But, of course, you then went back to the ends and made more music. And yeah. one of your signature tunes, which I imagine you'll play, is Six Months in a Leaky Boat. And I was wanted to ask you, do you have any recollections about writing that song, if it came quickly or you had to work at it for a long time? Uh, well, what I do remember is that I wrote it as a piano song um, and it was just a kind of a tune that I used to play on the piano and um, Nigel Griggs our bass player again um, noticed me playing it one day and he said oh that's good you should finish that you should turn that you know write us make a song out of it and sometimes that sometimes that's all you need uh, it was it was just the right nudge at the right time and also I happened to be um, going through a, a time when the band was so important to me my life was falling apart in every other area but but I still had the band and I valued them greatly and and was just able to come to come to those lyrics in that sort of context, having read that book. Um the 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 his uh what was the book called? Was it Jeffrey Blaney, the great Australian historian? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he used the phrase tyranny of distance in a book that I'd read, and it just obviously I copped it and um you know was thinking about the how long those boats took to come out from Europe and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that metaphor, as simple as it is, was hard one for me. And it was, you know, sometimes in your life, you just you just need a, me a metaphor or an image to kind of get you through. And that was, that was it. And then uh, I guess you went back to having the autonomy again of doing what you wanted in terms of uh, writing and recording. Um, were you, people always talk about influences. I'm not sure what that really means. I mean, there's obviously things you like as a writer but I guess you're not trying to emulate anybody else. You're, it's always going through the Tim Finn funnel, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Once you get up, once you get up to a, you know, I guess a certain amount of confidence. Um, and even when I look back on my early work, you know, I never, you, you wouldn't say, because I mean, obviously my idols were John Lennon, um, Paul McCartney, Ray Davies. And you don't really hear that in my music. I don't think like, you, you certainly don't hear it on mental notes, mm. apart from the fact that we were deconstructing songs, uh, which was something we 
took from, say, I Am the Walrus or Strawberry Fields, where the Beatles would interrupt the rhythm uh, completely and in, have these insertions of quite free abstract, whether it was orchestral or sound effects. Um, they were definitely messing with, with the song structure that they had um, been, you know, the best in the world at for quite some time. And, and uh, suddenly they were just breaking it all apart. And that deconstructionist kind of thing came into Spadens. But otherwise you would never, you wouldn't hear a hint of the Beatles on mental notes, I don't think. Mm. Um, and yet that was our juice. That was our kind of, uh, our, our engine really. So it's interesting, yeah, because other people, they get influenced, they sound a bit like, you know, the thing that influences them. But um, I think originality was really uppermost in our minds in a way of trying to just find our, our, our sound. And I mean, that's really the product of the 60s where modernism and originality was, they were both, you know, like the twin kind of keels of pop culture. And that, you know, started to be less important as decades went by. But we took that and ran with it. Did, with hindsight now because i hear a lot of people say this they say we never should have broken up the band we should have just taken 10 years off or five years off what are your thoughts now looking back over your shoulder yeah i know well i've i've had those thoughts but i you know because obviously you see that happen now much more people doing projects getting back with the band and they've never announced that the band is broken up other people break up the band and then get back together you know there's different ways of 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 looking at it different needs are satisfied i think it's part of the glorious narrative of any band to break up i mean the beatles broke up so you know i think yeah bring it on that's what you do right yeah that they reunion tour. i mean they never did a reunion tour uh, because imagine if they had been touring when sounds, you know, monitors were good and they could have heard each other and, and uh, they could have had a, a, an orchestra come on and off for various songs and, you know, it would have been unbelievable. But they never did. Um, we did. Spadens have done, have done re reunion tours. But that's not quite the same as once you've broken up, you know, a reunion tour is different to a, a, the band is back together tour, you know, and they're all, they've all got their place, but, yeah. You, you know, um, one of the mythical albums, I guess, in rock rock and roll is the record that didn't come out, the uh, Finn Brothers record that became Woodface. Um, the songs on there, you guys obviously hit a streak. D did you ever play with the idea of uh, doing the whole 1 to 12 track list and having the – did you guys have a finished album? Uh, yeah, we probably did. Um, I've never counted them up, really. Where there's a whole bunch of demos that have been released. Um, for example, the Needle Needle Mythology mm. re-release had a lot of those demos on vinyl. Um, and there's probably an album's worth there. So, would we have ruined them by taking them to the next level and recording them properly? Um, I don't know. You know, because they've got a charm as demos. Mm. But obviously, we did we did record Weather with You and and quite a few of them properly. Uh, in inverted commas properly, but um, the, there are others that never got recorded, like Catherine Wheels and um, a few others that just remained as demos, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just that's what it was meant to be somehow, was to be, you know, uh, absorbed into the Crowded House catalogue. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, Tim, because when people sort of say, oh, they can 
finish Let It Be as the Beatles intended now. They can make it raw and that's how Let It Be should have been. I thought, well, no, it wasn't because they got to that point. They rejected Glyn Johns's mix. Then they got Phil Spector in and that's how it concluded. You can't fake the ending twice, can you? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even... Uh, it doesn't seem to matter, you know, what, what uh, people say in a, in a way because it's whatever the Beatles want to do or whatever the remaining mm. Beatles or... Um, you know, it's up to them, and, and yeah. So, life on the road um, with the band. How many players in the in the band you've got? Um, there's 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 uh, there's five. Uh, there's um, guitar guitar keys, drums, bass, uh, saxophone. Well, the, the the guy that's playing saxophone also plays. Uh, clarinet and flute and so we're going to do some nice little orchestrations just don't forget early split ends you know we had a saxophone and a trumpet quite often um in our sound uh rob gillies played those and um so it's quite uh and, and then on escapade there's a fair bit of sax um so it's i love saxophone i think it, for me it was time time to bring it back um, and Carlo, Carlos, uh, Carlo, Barbe there's there's Carlo and Carlos in the band, and I'm going to constantly get it wrong. But Carlo Barbaro, who played in the uh, musical that I did with uh, Melbourne Theatre Company last year, um, he 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 was in the band for that, and he, he he's amazing, he's great. So that's going to add something. And then um, you know, the, our daughter Elliot's going to come out and sing uh, BVs, um, and we've just been doing some practicing here at home. Uh, so you know it'll be it'll be we'll be able to do it's like because Tony the bass player Tony Book and he sings really well. Um, Brett Adams obviously sings really well. So there's going to be three or four strong voices. There's going to be some good harmonies happening. So excited about that. Great, Tim. Look, I can't wait to see you play. Oh, thanks, Sean. It'll be fantastic. You're going to bring the tambourine? Uh yeah. I'll, I'm going to practice that now, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to do it for you, Sean. I would in love Brisbane. that. Only in Brisbane. Yeah, that will make my day. Thank you. <laughs> if I cut my hand and, you know, it comes up bleeding and red. Yeah. It'll be for you. You can see he bled for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Thanks so much, Tim. Great to see you. You too, Sean. Thanks. Thanks.